All right. around you here. See all these empty chairs? The rapture has not happened. You, you were not left behind. We just have people out sick. Like nine-tenths. Nine-tenths of our church. Okay, so hopefully you guys are going to send them some encouraging texts and... Uh, messages and look around and see who's missing pretty much everybody and uh, send them send them some note letting them know you miss them in the 11 right you know it tells us in hebrews three thirteen, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so send them a little message <clears throat> let them know that you miss them also just on that same note there's never been a better time really than to invite your friends or your families or uh, uh whoever you want uh, to church because uh, people need hope. Hope is found in Christ. We teach Jesus. It's that simple. And, and truth be told, it's kind of a harsh statement, but truth be told, um, ignorance kills. And uh, another way to put that, if people don't like that statement, would be that it does not pay to be ignorant of the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it does not pay to be ignorant concerning the good news, right? Not in the days in which we live today. Uh, so Jesus is coming back sooner than later, so people need to, more than ever need the truth and more than ever uh, need Jesus. Right? Now is the time. All right, we're in Genesis chapter 8, and hopefully those aren't texts or anything saying, I can't hear anything, no sound. Okay, good. Uh, so we're in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and we're going to read through chapter 9, verse 17. God's covenant with Noah. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah, chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. 
and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that you never again shall that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the promise that is in this word. And I thank you for the faithfulness, Lord. I thank you for your faithfulness. And I thank you that you uphold your word and that we have nothing to be afraid of, that you do exactly what you say you will. So we thank you for this, Lord. I thank you for your promise to us. I thank you for your great love to us. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to share that with those who need it. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are we? Noah and his family, his wife, his three sons, their wives, have stepped out of the ark and put their feet on solid ground, you could say, right? On the rock and the dirt for the first time in over a year. And looking around them, uh, who knows what they see, quite frankly. Uh, it's a dramatically changed earth. It's a changed climate. Uh, depending on how high they were on the mountain where the ark settled on Mount Ararat, it could have been colder than they have ever felt before. There's possibility that there was even snow, which they probably had never seen before. Right? Earth was harsher in many ways. And also their future is uncertain. They don't know what lies ahead of them. They don't know what's going to happen from this day forward. Uh, yet they had survived the flood, right? as God promised. The ark had been their salvation, right? The God of creation is the God of salvation. Now the ark is, uh, I don't know if I've gone over this, but the ark is a messianic typology is one of the things. And what that means is, is that the ark is, a, is a, a foreshadowing of Christ. It's a type of Christ. So the ark saves from judgment, saves Noah and his family from judgment, just as Christ does, right? The ark went through the storm, or you could say God's judgment, right? as Christ went through God's judgment for us. Right? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor in the Hebrew means grace. Right? And through faith, the faith to build the ark, the faith to get on the ark, the faith to be obedient to God's word, through faith he was saved, just as we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Right? The ark was exclusive, which means there were no other boats that could save anybody. Even if someone else had made a boat, there was no other boats that could save anybody. There was only one boat that was offered for salvation, and that was the ark. Just as there is only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, which is Jesus. Right? So the ark is a, a messianic typology. It's a foreshadowing. It's a picture of Christ. So now Noah and his family, 
they've left the ark. And they're standing on a, a renewed, a, a washed clean, a baptized earth, if you will. And Noah had put his, his life and his family's life into the hands of God. And God graciously protected them and saw them through the flood, just as he promised he would. So by faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Noah entered the ark. By faith, Noah left the ark. And now what is Noah doing? Noah's worshiping the Lord. And how is he worshiping the Lord? Well, we see it in verse 20. It says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah is worshiping the Lord by offering burnt offerings to God. Now the Hebrew word olah, for, is, which is the Hebrew word for burnt offerings, olah, uh, means to ascend or to step upward, or some say go up and smoke. You can get the picture. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, um, <clears throat> the Greek use a word whose root is the word holocaustin. Uh, and the Greek word holocaustin is where the word holocaust comes from. Right? Now, interestingly, God had not laid out any rules about offerings yet. Right? You get into Leviticus. We've been going through Leviticus with our kids and uh, their Bible reading every morning. All right? So when you get into Leviticus, you see these rules and these laws concerning how to do uh, offerings, burn offerings, right? So um, w- what you can bring, what you can burn, how you burn it, what gets burned, what gets taken out to the, you know, the refuse pile, et cetera, the, the who, what, and why concerning the offerings, the, you know, what to burn, how to burn it, where to burn it, what to throw away, all those different things that God lays out concerning the offerings. None of those have been recorded yet. Moses hasn't written those down. We're not even to Moses yet. Regardless, offerings go all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? We saw Cain and Abel bringing offerings to the Lord. People have been giving offerings to the Lord all the way up until this time, 1,600 years plus since creation. So Moa is offering burnt offerings. Well, what are burnt offerings for? When you get to Leviticus, you see that burnt offerings are something that can be offered at any time. Uh, They're a sacrifice of general atonement. They're an acknowledgement of our sin nature and our request for a uh, renewed relationship with the holy and righteous God. Um, So the Bible says, let everything with breath praise the Lord, which means we are made to worship, right? right? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. We are made to worship. So Noah's burnt offerings, as he steps off the ark, the very first thing he does with these burnt offerings, his burnt offerings are worship and they're a sacrificial worship, right? And so we should be a people who give sacrificially, Right? Giving our lives to God for whatever he wishes to do through us. We should be people of sacrifice. Because as you know, Jesus gave himself up as a sacrifice. Right? It tells us in Ephesians 5 too, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So in our lives, sacrifice shows we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And we should be like Christ in this, sacrificial in our sacrifice, you know, in our givings and our offerings to God, giving our life to Christ. And just as a burnt offering is a, uh, is done with a fire so hot that it consumes, literally consumes, the entire sacrifice on the altar. Um, your life needs to be given to God in that way as well, right? Entirely consumed for God. Our life should be a sacrifice. It's a form of worship. We're to leave all of our life on the altar for God. So Noah was sacrificially giving 
And he was also giving thanks as well. Because the Bible also tells us, right, to give thanks to God in all things, at all times. This is also part of your worship to the Lord, right? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. There is, there is no, you know, caveat there. It's in all circumstances, right? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're always like, I wonder what God's will for me is. Well, guess what God's will for you is? It's to give thanks in all circumstances, right? The God who is unchanging is unchanged by your circumstances, which means no matter how you feel about the circumstances, it doesn't change anything about God. So God says, give thanks in all circumstances, not because of how you feel, but because of who I am, right? He's the same God you were praising when everything was going great. He should be the same God you're praising when everything's gone down the toilet, right? Noah walked with God before the flood. So we know he, was, he, he, was, he had faith in the Lord, and obviously he was worshiping God before all this happened. Right? So now he needs to be, you know, he's worshiping the Lord after he's gone through it all. He was probably worshiping the Lord while he was gone th- going through it all. We don't really know what he was doing on the ark. Right? So if you're going to worship him when everything is going great in life, you should be worshiping and praising him and giving him thanks when it's the opposite as well. Right? You worship him during the flood. You worship him after the flood. That is an act of faith. When you're anxious, when you're distressed, when you're depressed, right? You just give thanks to God because guess what? He's got it, right? He's faithful. You are loved. He loves you perfectly and his perfect love casts out fear. So some people say, well, how do you worship God? Because worshiping is one of these ideas that everyone has a different picture on, which is great because everyone can worship differently. Not everyone worships the same. Worship is not just singing songs before the service. There's, you, you worship in in the way, you know, in, in everything that you do, quite frankly, in, in every breath that you take. You're worshiping God when you love others. You're worshiping God when you give time and, and give money and do all these things to help other people. That's part of your worship to the Lord because you're doing that out of your love for God because of his love for you. So it's all part of your worship. But the question is, people say, well, how do you worship God? Well, Jesus said, God, the Father, is spirit. And he says, those who worship him must worship, therefore, in spirit and truth. Well, how do you worship in spirit? <laughs> right? Well, you need to be dead. That's how you worship in spirit, right? <clears throat> so we need to be dead to the world, and we need to be alive to God, which is part of our uh, faith. When we give our lives to Christ, we are basically dying, Right? We are giving our life. We are dying to the world and we are be, being made alive to God. We are dead to the things of the world and we are alive to Christ Jesus. Right? So dead men can worship in spirit. You can worship in spirit because now you have the spirit of God in you. It resides in you through Christ Jesus. So then it says, well, how do you worship in truth? Right? If we're supposed to worship in spirit and truth, uh, how do you worship in truth? Well, again, it all revolves around Jesus. Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So you worship Jesus, right? That's how you worship. God the sons. Well, how do you worship Jesus? Well, here's how you worship Jesus. You take up your cross and you follow Jesus. What is that? That's sacrificial worship, right? That's leaving it all on the altar. You, you have to worship Jesus with the cross. There is no other way to worship Jesus. 
Jesus said, Matthew 16, 24, and in the Gospels, you can read it. He tells his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What is denying yourself? That's sacrifice, right? Because our flesh wants one thing, our spirit wants another, right? And the two battle back and forth. That's what Paul writes, right? Everything I want to do, I can't do. And everything that I know I should do, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just this confusion. My, ba- my spirit and my flesh are battling against each other. <clears throat> well, you have to deny yourself to take up the cross of Jesus. So that's the sacrifice. So if anyone wants to follow after Jesus, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That's worshiping in truth. And with that, we need to understand that in and of ourselves, we cannot please the Lord. I mean, he might need some more water. <clears throat> in and of ourselves, we cannot please the Lord by, by water who we are. Right? But what we do, none of that is what pleases the Lord. But by faith in Christ Jesus, we're accepted. That's what pleases the Lord. <coughs> by faith we are saved, not by works. When we put our faith in Christ Jesus, well, what that means is then, at that time, you are in Christ Jesus. All right, Ephesians is a good book to read about that. And then when God looks at us, what does he see? Well, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see your works. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And that is a soothing aroma to God. When you get those tickles in your throat, I don't care how much water I drink sometimes. <coughs> it doesn't calm them down. So it says in verse 21, right here, that the burnt offerings that Noah was doing, it says, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Right? It's a pleasing, soothing aroma to God. When you are living a life, a sacrificial life, an offering, you've given your life as an offering to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Pleasing, soothing aroma. And, we, and, it's, and we, that's kind of odd because we're always like, well, we don't think of burnt flesh as a soothing aroma necessarily. <clears throat> well, you don't think of your prayers as a bowl of incense either, but God does. That's how he sees your prayers. That's how he sees your sacrifice. That's how he sees your offerings, right? Fragrant, soothing, tranquil is what it means in the Hebrew. So let's not spill it. Okay. So God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hold on to that statement for just a second. We'll, we'll get right back to there. And I want to point something out. He says, Neither again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. So, you know, man is helpless to save himself. Man can't save himself. Only God can save man. But it's interesting is that this is the pretty much the same exact thing God said before he promised to bring the flood. The, The intent of man's heart is evil all the time. Well, now the floods come. And everyone's wiped out, except for Noah and his family, eight people. And God says <clears throat> that the intent of man's heart is evil from youth. Still. Right? Which means he's referring to Noah and his family. 
<clears throat> I'm not going to curse the ground again on the account of man, even though, Noah, you and your family's heart are still evil. That's a sobering kind of statement. Because what it shows is that, is that God saved Noah, even though Noah didn't really deserve it. And that's important for us to remember. Right? We want to, we you know, get that in your brain. Right? What it means is this. It's Romans 5.8. It says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't wait for you to get your life back together, figure out how to put on a suit and tie and shave, get a job and pay your bills, <clears throat> right? And, and look good aesthetically, you know, wear the suit to church every Sunday, have a track record where you never miss one for you know, months at a time. You got the award for best, you know, whatever, you know, right? But he says, no, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So we see that God saved Noah and his family by grace. Had nothing to do with Noah. Had nothing to do with Noah at all. Yes, Noah walked with God. But Noah had done nothing and could do nothing to deserve salvation. Right? He didn't earn it. He could not deserve it. His salvation has nothing to do with him and had everything to do with God. God's love for us comes from who God is and has nothing to do with who we are. If it had been about the amazing righteousness of Noah, right? Noah's such a great guy. He worships me every day. He gives me offerings every day. He prays every morning. He prays every afternoon. He prays every night. He's got my entire word memorized. He's, you know, he's, he's a preacher of righteousness to everybody. He has Bible study, studies once a week. You know, if, if he had just like labeled, I'm going to save Noah because he is so great in everything that he does. If it had been about Noah's righteousness, it had been about the amazing righteousness of Noah, then Noah would not have worshiped God after the flood. Noah probably would have been like, worship me. I'm so good. I saved you all. It was about my righteousness. God saved us because I'm such a great guy. All you need, people need to bow down and worship me. I mean, that's how man is. That's how man is, right? However, Noah humbly and in thanksgiving worships the Lord because he knows that he and his family have been saved because they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And no other reason. It had nothing to do with them. They weren't that great of people. Matter of fact, God is telling them right now they still aren't that great of people. And as we'll see, as we continue on in Genesis, with that last picture of Noah and his family before we move on, they aren't that great of people. They, they're just like everyone else, right? They stumble, they fall, they have their problems, their ups and downs. But with that, I want to say this, which is this is how we should love as well. Right? We should love because we are loved by God. Because God loved us so much, he sent his son to the cross in our place, right? and whosoever believes in him, Jesus, will be saved. This is how come we should love. So when we love our neighbors, when we love our kids, when we love our families, when we love our friends, when we love our wives or our husbands or whoever, we should love them with that same love, a love that has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with them. Right? A love that I'll love you when you deserve it. I'll love you when you mow the lawn, right? A love that has nothing to do with anything like that. Nothing to do with our feelings. Nothing to do with how we can be worshipped. But it has everything to do with God. And it's done in worship to Christ Jesus. 
That's how we should love people. And another thing, I just want to point out what this doesn't mean. When God said he's not going to judge the earth again on account of man, it doesn't mean that God doesn't judge sin today. That's not what God's saying, right? Okay, I'm done judging sin. I'm never going to judge sin again. He's not saying that. He does. Romans 1.18 makes it clear that God's judgment is being revealed against sinners right now, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But it also does not mean that there will not be a future judgment of the world. He's saying he's never going to flood the earth again, which he even mentions later in chapter 9. Matter of fact, what he says is, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So these natural order of earth, the natural seasons, everything that goes on will still be going on as long as the earth remains. That doesn't mean that the earth is going to remain forever. Right? God's saying, God isn't saying that he's not going to judge the world again. All he's saying is that he's not going to add to man's affliction. Right? He's not going to add any other further curse on top of the curse for Adam's sin or on top of the curse for Cain's sin or any of these. I'm not, I'm not going to add on to that anymore. That's sufficient. Right? That's sufficient. So we get into chapter 9 now. And God was saying those things to himself. He was thinking those things to himself. He wasn't saying them out loud to Noah. But now God's going to speak to Noah. And he's going to tell them, as you see in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Right? Fill the earth. He tells them that, like, I think twice in this section of verses here. Literally, that means swarm the earth. So he's telling Noah, be fruitful, multiply, let your families grow and swarm the earth. When we get into, um, you know, chapter 11 of Genesis and, and Babylon and the Tower of Babel and all that, you can, you're going to be able to see that they didn't really follow that job really well. They sort of all hung around in, in one area for the most part. Um, <clears throat> but then he also tells them, uh, the animals you can eat now. Before they didn't eat animals. Now he's given them, he says, as a matter of fact, they're going to they're have a fear of you. Before, they didn't even have a fear of man. They, they, they hung around together. But now animals are going to have a fear of you. So all the animals are going to have a fear of you. But now you're allowed to eat meat. Every moving thing that is alive, he says. You, you're welcome to it. But he says, don't eat flesh with its life. Don't eat flesh with its blood. That's kind of an interesting statement. Because um, that word life can also mean soul. Matter of fact, it's translated soul three times as much as it's translated life uh, in the Old Testament. The word is nepesh. Um but all it's really saying is that there needs to be a proper respect for the blood of, of an animal, for the life of an animal. There needs to be a proper respect for it. Because um, animals are, are sacred and they're uh, accepted in sacrifice. Um, Leviticus, when you get into Leviticus, Leviticus 17.11, it's a very, it's a, 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 a verse talks about the blood of sacrifice. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right? Life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. But we see how important blood is in that sense as he goes through these verses here in chapter 9, because he says that uh, he will require your, uh, your lifeblood from every beast, from every man, from every man's brother, he basically says. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. 
So this is important, that the idea of the blood is important to God. If you just carelessly shed the blood of another, God doesn't want you to do that. It's even referring to that with animals. Don't just carelessly shed the blood of an animal. There has to be a reason for it. There needs to be a reason for it. You need to respect that animal's life, that animal's soul, quote unquote. Right? The lifeblood, the soul of man was more sacred than that of animals because he says if you shed the blood of a man, you're going to pay for it. Right? Someone's going to shed your blood. Um, and when he talks about shedding there in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Um, that Hebrew word, shapak, can also be translated poured out. Right? If, you, if you pour out the blood of man, by man your blood shall be poured out. And it's a very kind of prophetic. I mean, we can look at it prophetically in the sense that when you get to like Psalms 22, 14, for example, uh, a reference uh, that points us to Jesus, uh, um, uh, sort of a, a very prophetic psalm that says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. That idea of being poured out. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has to put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. These type of verses that we see, even Paul references to being poured out like an offering because of, of giving his life to the Lord. When we see these type of verses, it's just saying, again, without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sins. Jesus shed his blood for our sins, right? Once for all. Blood, life blood, soul, very important to God. Don't just shed blood carelessly. Because it's all about the blood. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? As you go through the Bible, specifically the New Testament, right? You'll see that, like, for example, in Romans it tells us we are justified by the blood of Jesus. In Ephesians, it tells us we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. In Colossians, it tells us that we find peace through the blood of Jesus. Right? In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus' blood will cleanse our consciousness. In 1 John, it tells us that it purifies us from sin. In Hebrews, also, it tells us that it gives us confidence to enter into the holy place. Right? In Hebrews, it also tells us that his blood sanctifies and makes us holy. And then when you get to the end of the New Testament in Revelation, it tells us that we will triumph over Satan by his blood by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't careless. I mean, the people who are sacrificing him, in a sense, their mentality towards it, they were just killing somebody for no good reason. That's a careless. But yet it was a willful and obedient act of God. I mean, Christ knew what he was doing. He was willfully, obediently obeying God the Father. He went up there with a purpose. So in that sense, he wasn't being careless. Right? He's not being reckless. It may look reckless to the world. It wasn't being reckless. He wasn't being reckless. So, he go, so God goes through all this with Noah, and he tells Noah, listen, I'm establishing, therefore, my covenant with you right now. Now he actually, if you go back to Genesis 6, Genesis 6, verse 18, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, right? And now he told Noah that before Noah had built the ark, 
right? In chapter six, Noah hadn't built the ark yet. So God was telling him about this covenant. I'm going to establish my covenant with you back in Genesis chapter six, before he even built the ark, before the flood. So now here we are all these years later, however long it has been. And now he is explaining the covenant to Noah. Noah had to wait by faith, right? By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Noah got on the ark. By faith, Noah got off the ark, right? And now, by faith, he's waited this entire time for God to explain this covenant that he's establishing with Noah. And now he's explaining it to him, right? We call it the Noahic covenant. It's about covenant. It's part of what they call covenant theology. And we haven't really gone over it, but Grace is the overall specific covenant of the Bible. It's the main focus, but it works out through all these subordinate covenants and culminates in the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, as it tells us in Hebrews. And of course, when we, uh, you know, when we take the cup, you know, we, what do we say? We say, likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, right? This is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus said there in the Last Supper, as he kind of flipped the whole thing on its head. The new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. And the covenant is just a binding agreement between two parties. It's just a, you know, a legal contract, right? It's an agreement that brings about uh, a relationship of commitment between God and his people. So it's an agreement, it's a pledge, it's a commitment, it's a promise, it's a whatever, a deal, a pact. Um, but who, who made it? Who made the pact? Did Noah make the pact with God? Did Noah, did Noah say, God, if you'll just save us from the flood, I promise I'm going to spend the rest of my days doing everything you ask. God, just save me, please. I promise. I'll give my life to you if you just save me, please. Come on. No. God, I mean, Noah didn't make the covenant with God. God made the covenant. But he actually made the covenant with himself. He didn't even make the covenant with Noah. He made the covenant with himself. The covenant is between God and himself. And Noah and us, you could say, with the new covenant, we are just recipients of it. We are just recipients because it's the Lord who always initiates. Right? It's never done in, uh, in response to our actions. Matter of fact, it's done regardless of our actions. Right? This is not our deal. It's not our pact with God. It's nothing of the sort. We didn't make this deal. Noah didn't make the deal. God made the deal. And the promise and the hope that's found in that is that the Lord always fulfills his end of the bargain. Always. Right? And then our response then to God's initiation, to God's covenant, to God's promise that he, bring, he gives to us even though we're undeserving should be just by faith to worship God. Right? And so he tells him about this covenant. I established my covenant with you that again, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, what is the covenant? The covenant is that he's never going to flood the earth again. Right? He promises to never flood the earth again. Right? This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So the covenant wasn't just for Noah and his family and all his descendants. It was for all living creatures on earth. It was for the earth. It's a covenant that God made with himself for the earth and every living creature on it for all future generations. I will never flood the earth again. And this was the sign of his covenant. It can also mean Mark. It's translated Mark earlier on in Genesis. Um, he says, I have set my bow in the cloud. 
a rainbow. Right? A rainbow is a sign of God's promise. It's a sign of God's covenant that he made with himself that Noah is the recipient of. Right? It's not the rainbow connection. Right? There's no Muppets involved with this, with this rainbow. Why, why are there so many songs about rainbow? It's not that. Uh, you're not going to have Kermit singing on a log, right? Or whatever he's on. But it is an everlasting covenant. It's never, this covenant does not have an end. It's an everlasting covenant. Now, what's really interesting is the fact that it's possible that there had never been a rainbow before at all. Noah may have never ever seen a rainbow before. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds as if it's almost the first time that he's done it. Look at this, Noah. Ooh, this is my sign. This is the sign of my covenant, right? I mean, because... Rainbows require what? Sunlight and, and water droplets and whatever and reflection. And, and you know, pre-flood, you just had this vapor canopy uh, above the earth. There wasn't any rain. So we don't know if there was any rainbow or anything pre-flood, if Noah had even seen a rainbow before. But God sets this rainbow in the clouds. And rainbows only appear three more times in Scripture. Besides what we read here in Genesis, they only appear three more times in Scripture. They appear in Ezekiel um, it says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of the one speaking. And in Revelation 4.3, it mirrors that. It says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And in Revelation 10.1, and then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs pillars of fire. Biblically speaking, the rainbow is a sign of a covenant that God made with the whole earth with Noah, that he'll never destroy the earth again with a flood, right? Because the next time he's bringing fire, as it tells us in 2 Peter 3, right? But today, rainbows mean something entirely different to the world, right? Rainbows have been corrupted. They've been co-opted for, one could say, demonic purposes, right? The colors of the rainbow are now used in the flag for gay pride, and that flag changes all the time. I understand that. What it looked like back when it was originally created in 1978 to what it looks like today is not the same flag. They've added different designs and different colors and, and all these things. But the original design had eight colors, and each one had a meaning. Uh, like the hot pink meant sexuality, and red meant life, and orange meant healing, and yellow meant the sun, and green meant nature, and turquoise meant art, and indigo meant harmony, and violet meant, meant spirit. So they had purpose behind creating this flag. And, you know, it, designs have changed over time. But rainbow flags and banners today, as we know, are all used by the LGBTQ++ community. And, you know, they represent, well, to them, they represent diversity, hope, whatever, social action. I don't know what, everything they represent. But, it, um, you know, my feeling towards the rainbow, though, has always been that it doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't represent them at all. When we were in Disneyland, my son bought the Mickey Mouse hat with the rainbow ears on it, and uh, he really thought it was cool, and he bought it. And of course, we knew that to a lot of other people, that meant something else entirely. And um, But to me, it didn't mean that, so I didn't have any issue with it. I was like, well, I don't care. Buy the hat. So he was really, he liked it. He was buy the hat, and he walked around with it and until he started realizing what it meant to other people, and then he was, I was like, I don't want to wear this hat anymore. But 
you know, but, but I was like, I don't have any fear wearing rainbow stuff because to me it means something entirely different. You know, hashtag take back the rainbow. Take back the rainbow, right? But it doesn't stop there. Um, the New Age movement, have you heard the phrase rainbow children, right? It starts with indigo children. Indigo children are the New Age designation for people who appear to have certain spiritual gifts that start in childhood. The term was coined by a parapsychologist named Nancy Ann Tapp who claimed that some children have indigo auras. Right? They can see your aura. Your aura is indigo. You're an indigo child. Maybe. Anyway, so they say that long ago people started to think more than they felt, so they rebelled against that trend, intuitively knowing how to be more in tune with the universe through their emotions. So these rebels gave birth to children who had the memory of the collective consciousness, and these people gave birth to children who had called the indigo children, children with indigo auras, right? So in the New Age belief, indigo is one of the three levels of so-called star children, if you study the, the New Age movement. And it represents the first step of the evolution of humans into a more spiritually aware state. So the indigo children, or the first indigo children, were said to have been born after World War II. Okay? And then the population grew into the 70s, and the next level is crystal children, and finally rainbow children. Right? So star children supposedly herald the arrival of the age of Aquarius. They help with the whole age of Aquarius thing. Um, so according to many New Agers, crystal children, most of born who were born in the 1990s or later, which is most of the current generation if they believe in New Age, um, they even have greater psychic and telepathic ability than indigos. However, the next step, the next evolutionary step as far as the New Age is concerned is rainbow children. However, right, their auras are going to encompass all colors, colors of the rainbow. However, uh, as far as I know, no rainbow children have ever been born yet. Uh, in the, the New Age movement. You also have the Rainbow Bridge. You know what the Rainbow Bridge is? It has to do with deceased pets and uh, being reunited later with their owners. Yeah, you can cross the Rainbow Bridge. You also have Bifrost, which is in North mythology, a rainbow bridge that reaches between Midgard, which is Earth, and Asgard, which is the realm of the gods. The Greeks and the Romans had a similar belief concerning uh, that as well, that the rainbow was a bridge to the gods. Um, but so there's many, all these different cultural, historical views of what the rainbow means, what the rainbow is, etc. But this is what you get to take with you. This is what we'll end with. Uh, the rainbow is God's creation, right? It's no one else's creation. Despite what others may think or what others may lay claim to concerning the rainbow, none of it matters. Why? Because God created it and God gets the first and final say about what the rainbow means. Right? The attempt of some to co-opt the colors of the rainbow for their own purposes does not diminish the beauty and the wonder of what God has made in any way, shape, or form. Right? A rainbow is a symbol of God's faithfulness, of his mercy. Another way to think of it is, is that a rainbow is the, a picture of the manifold grace of God. Why do I say that? That comes from the verse 1 Peter 4.10 that says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right? Some translations say manifold grace. So it's a, it's a picture of the manifold grace of God. Well, in the Greek, that word that's varied or manifold, what it means is various or variegated colors. That's what it means in the Greek. So kind of like a rainbow. So it's a picture of the manifold grace of God. And we love rainbows. 
I mean, rainbows are beautiful. We see rainbows all the time. We delight in them. We uh, you know, delight in the pictures of rainbows. They're awe-inspiring when we see a rainbow after a storm. It's beautiful, especially if you see a double rainbow. I almost brought a picture of Emily. She's standing outside with the double rainbow behind her that Julie took a picture of you know, after, after the thing. We were driving home last night from here, from the Grange, after setting up some of the chairs, and we saw something that my wife coined as a skyfire rainbow, right? I, I didn't see it, so I can't describe it, but I guess it was, it was over that way somewhere, and it was just magnificent. It was, you know, crazy. So rainbows are seen all over the world, but guess what? God's grace is sufficient for all, for everybody, which is why everyone gets to see rainbows, because his covenant was made for the earth and for everyone on it. The rainbow should remind us of God's faithfulness and should remind us of his grace and it should remind us of his worry. I mean, his worry. Yeah. It should remind you of God's worry. It should remind you of God's mercy. Right? And, but here's the question I have to ask. If that's what it reminds you of, if you look at a rainbow and, you, and you're reminded of God's faith and faithfulness and his grace and his mercy, you're reminded that God keeps his promises. Right? That God sees you through the storm. If you're reminded of those things when you see a rainbow, then why, why do you worry? Right? Why are you anxious then when storms arise? There's a quote by Warren Wiersbe that says, if you want to enjoy the rainbow, be prepared to endure the storm. See, God never said we wouldn't experience storms. He said actually just the opposite. Right? It's not a when, it's a if. Or it's not an if, it's a when right? It's the other way. We're in the midst of a storm today, right? Some people might say the edges of the storm are just making landfall. Some people think we're in the eye of the storm already. It doesn't matter, right? If you constantly watch the news, you're probably in a constant state of depression, but if you constantly watch the news, you know, if you're at least around the corner from a state of depression, because it's just so depressing. We're in the midst of a storm today, but when those storm clouds appear, when the rain starts to fall, when the wind starts to blow hard, when the, when the <coughs> cow flies by the window, right? when you hear the cackle of the wicked witch of the West and their toxic green makeup, when, you, when these things start happening, what's your reaction? What's your reaction? I'm, I'm here to tell you, you have nothing to fear. Nothing. Because for us, the rainbow is a promise of peace. In the midst of a storm, then, therefore, look for the rainbow. Look for the rainbow. You may see it before the storm starts, as some have. You may see it in the midst of the storm. Or you may be like Noah, and you may not see it until after the storm is over. But the one thing I can guarantee you is that if you're looking by faith, you will see it. It's a sign of God's faithfulness, right? It's a sign of his grace and his mercy. So all I got to say is just trust Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your son, Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that what you say comes true. And that we have hope in that. And we have nothing to be afraid of. Your perfect love casts out fear. And you perfectly love us. And you sent your son to the cross to die for us. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Because of your great love. 
So Lord, I just pray that you just re- keep reminding us of this. Help us to see the truth and the hope that's found in your words. See your faithfulness. So we know that we can get through the days ahead. Because he who promised is faithful. And I thank you for that. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.